0: Heavenly Father, we come to you and we know that you are the giver of life, you are the author of salvation, you are the one that provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness. And when storm clouds gather and the rain falls, it may be a precarious situation for many with so much rain and flooding and the uh, hurricanes and things that happen to us here on a natural basis. But Father, there are those things which happen on a supernatural basis as well that cause the same type of fear and anxiousness and we pray that as we go through your word today we would not feel those things or they would be removed from us and we pray that you would help us by your spirit to live in such a way that is pleasing to you we're never fearful or doubtful of what the future holds so encourage us this morning Lord we pray in Jesus name amen so first my personal moral views, are biblical moral views. There's one political party that follows those, not perfectly, but more closely than the other. And what a week we have had, so many thoughts on the election. I, I won't share them all with you, otherwise we'd be here for at least four hours. There's a slew of emotions that I went through on this uh, election, anger, resentment, blame, <laughs> blame-setting. Uh, Sadness, disgust, anything but happiness, joy, and rejoicing. And uh, maybe some righteous indignation would be the majority of the emotions that I felt, uh, that I experienced. But I've had had to turn off the news uh, more than once and not pay attention to it. uh, Because I I just, I could go on, I'm going to stick to the script here. We still don't know who the president is. And it's a week later. And it's not looking very promising for the current occupant of the White House. Uh, There is gloating, there is deception, there is more evidence of voter fraud than there was for Russian collusion, Uh, but the media doesn't seem to want to talk about that. There are lawsuits that are pending, and they are in the courts right now, and I hear that Monday is going to be the start of quite the legal battle. And you can just imagine how that turns out if uh, the Constitution is followed If it is followed and we find out that the governors and the election commissions and commissioners and the authorities that be changed the rules of the election and they didn't follow the constitutional law, if this is, quote, unquote, overturned, it hasn't been called yet. It's the media that has declared uh, Biden to be the winner. But if that is overturned, what do you think is going to happen? There is going to be, oh, fraud, and there is cheating going on, just exactly what I feel. Of course, I have a uh, particular view on that. I feel that there has been cheating and voter fraud, and I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I was flipping through the channels when the election was taking place, and I noticed a couple of things that were very distinct to me that they, of course, didn't call Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania when they could have uh, if there wasn't extended voting times. And then all these ballots are showing up, 138,000 ballots in Michigan, and they were all for Joe Biden. It's a, What's the probability of that? Oh, it's probably a great probability that all the votes would go for just one candidate when they were found. It, you know, stuff like that that I'm viewing and then the glitches in the election process. Which states had the glitches at the polls? Well, it was Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, South, North Carolina, and Georgia. They're the ones with the glitches um, that were taking place. And then I also noticed that they stopped counting. Instead of continuing to count, oh, we're going to shut down. We're going to give it a few more days. We don't know what the results are going to be. And there was one point at, during the night that I'm going, ah, it's over. That's pretty much it. And then they started calling Arizona and California and Washington and Oregon. And I go, but what about these other states? They closed the polls a long time ago. And then I don't know if you listened to the news and Project Veritas and James O'Keefe and exposed. Some of the um, illegalities that were taking place in the Postal Service, how one guy was giving away ballots and he's on camera and audio and just so many problems with the election. And by the way, I believe this is by design. Now, if Biden becomes president, because he's not president yet, I know he's making plans. But there are stories that there's going to be a flood of executive orders to overturn everything Trump has accomplished. There are going to be tax increases. There are going to be changes in health care, police departments, criminal investigations by Durham and Barr will go away. Moral decay will probably be legislated and more freedoms will be eroded. Uh, and not to mention, there's going to be an attack on those who have guns in this country, the Second Amendment, and also the freedom of speech. And you know, when something like this takes place, and I'm not going to mince words, I believe what the democratic uh, platform, the planks in that platform, what they stand for are wickedness. Make no bones about it. I think on the Republican side, it's more closely aligned with biblical morality. And that's what my uh, determining factor is. It's the biblical morality. Which one most closely aligns with that? And the leaders of the Democratic Party believe that they are influenced by no other than Satan himself because they are at the higher echelons of power and power over the entire world to affect that. Whether it's the economy or whether it's conflict around the world, those people are the ones who are in power and that's where Satan is going to find his seat. And I believe he's being an influence with that. And Proverbs chapter 28 verse 28 says, When the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when wicked perish, the righteous thrive." And so if I consider the Democrat planks in the party, I'm not calling the individuals wicked, but I believe the, the planks are wicked and they hold to those planks. If those are instituted, the righteous will go into hiding. Uh, the uh, tendency to want to hide money, to want to hide uh, what you do and how you live, all of that is going to be put down. But when the righteous come to power, the righteous thrive. They come to the surface and they stand for what is right. And I believe that will be the case if Biden does become president. And also we need to be uh, prayerful over the Senate. If the majority is overturned, you will see state packing, court packing, and this is if Biden is uh, the president as well, state packing. They'll uh, have Washington, D.C. become a state, which they get two more senators, which will never have a majority In the Senate, again, if that's the case, they could also make Puerto Rico uh, a state and that would have four more senators and they are not conservative in their views in those particular areas. Their uh, free and open elections will probably disappear. I heard someone say once that the left will try to get rid of elections as much as possible. And if this happens... uh, Well, the electoral college, if they get rid of the electoral college. And I believe that was a stroke of genius by the founding fathers. The states at the time, they were getting together and they were saying, or the colonies, they were saying, you know, how are we supposed to do this? Excuse me, the states were saying, how are we supposed to do this? If the population is greater in one state than in another, that state will end up electing the president if there is no electoral college. And that's the purpose of the electoral college. The larger states with larger populations get the Electoral College. They get a certain number of people there, like Alaska is three, and I think uh Texas fifty-four, fifty-five, and you know, California, whatever the numbers are, if you get the exact numbers, but it's based on population. If they get rid of the electoral college, where some of the smaller states, if they band together, they will have as many votes as the larger states, well, that will go away. It will only be California, Texas, and New York that will in the future elect the president. Two of those states have already gone leftist, or not so much liberal, but leftist, and Texas is being worked on. They just poured almost, I forget how many hundreds of millions of dollars into that uh, run in Texas. And so there's an attempt to control that. And like I said, the gun control, I think Beto will be in charge of the gun control. And he, uh, I think he's the one that said, we're coming after your guns. And so that goes with the Second Amendment. Now, if Trump wins his lawsuit and the election is overturned, I promise you it will be a God thing. Just as he won the first time and everybody was just shocked out of their socks, that will happen again this time. And do you think it's any accident Amy Comey Barrett is now in the Supreme Court? That one woman has the chance to preserve the entire Union of the United States as it was founded. One person. And she would be the uh, the vote that would put us over the top as far as having a, a republic as it stands and as it was founded. So all that could go away. But if he wins, it will not be accepted by the media or any of the progressive or leftists. It will be perceived that Trump stole the election. There will probably be more moves to impeach him and a slew of investigations will be opened. And you know, my personal view is, and I said this to someone this morning, if Trump loses the election, I hope he declassifies all the investigations, opens up all the books, just lets the entire country see what has actually transpired. And I think there would be a move to stop him in that that the information would not be made available uh, to anyone. And, And that's just the players who are there. To say the least, this is just a mess. And that mess was designed. There are power brokers behind the scenes working to make this happen just the way it did. And those players who are behind the scenes, we should not focus on them because I think they're tools. I think they're being used before we start looking at the earthly players in this fiasco the governors the courts the politicians the different elections and election commissioners the postal service we have to keep a perspective on what's going on Uh, it's a spiritual battle this is ephesians chapter 6 and i'm going to read this to you finally be strong in the lord and in his mighty power This is our charge that has been given to us. Now, when I'm going through my slew of emotions, I remember the day after, or maybe the next day, I was driving to my sector job out there, and I was just thinking, these are the thoughts that were going through my head. What good does it do to vote if they can just steal your vote? And nobody, what can I do about it? The only thing I can do is vote. And then I started thinking, This is why people go postal. Because they think there's nothing that they can do and something has been stolen from them and it's totally unrighteous. And I could see why these militias would rise and try to kidnap the governor of Michigan or whatever they might do. I could see why they do this and you get into this mentality. And as I'm thinking that, I'm receiving an arrow from the enemy in my back like oh he got me the flaming arrows coming in and i'm i'm letting my guard down i'm not standing up i don't care what you can do to me this world or satan or who you are but i have the word of god i have the helmet of salvation i have the breastplate of righteousness i have my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and i'm still going forward and i may be attacked and, and people may say bad things about me because i'm doing this on a public forum and it's going over the internet and people are going to know exactly what i think and i think that's good I like clarity rather than agreement. I want people to know exactly where I stand. And I believe the party that it may be coming in power, they're not clear. They hide things. They, they cover it over. And when President Trump was in there, I think he did exactly what he said he was going to do, trying to clear the swamp. And, of course, the rats were leaving the ship, so to speak. Not that I'm calling people rats. But you understand what is going on and so we need this type of clarity we need to be able to stand up and say oh no, this was wrong this is not correct the way some of these officials change these election laws they are trying to pull over uh, or pull over a ruse so to speak they're trying to deceive the people and everything that's being reported out there whether it's on the internet or the memes which are out there and some of those memes are being very cruel uh, to the president of course I think he's up for the task. I think he's a fighter. And I think it, my wife told me this morning, says she just thinks that motivates him even more to stand up and do what he knows to be right. And there are literally millions of Christians praying. I mean, how many of you started praying when you saw what was happening with the election? It's like, man, we got to start praying right now because this is not a good thing what is taking place. And so it is a spiritual battle you want to make sure you're armored for it. You want to make sure that if somebody says, all right, Biden's in, you say, really? You, you really think that's good? Tell me why you think that's good. And sit down and have a conversation with him. And also, if he does get in, what are we supposed to do? Pray. That's what scripture says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge you then, first of all, that prayer, or requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For Joe Biden and all those in his cabinet and all those in authority and kings and that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we know how this ends. Now, a couple of times this last year, I, I let you know that as Christians, we are not going to win this earthly battle. We are eventually going to lose. When Trump came to office, I said, that's all good, but we are eventually going to lose as far as our belief systems, what we hold to, Jesus Christ and all that. It's going to seem like we're done. And I think there may eventually be legislation to enforce that as far as the churches are concerned and shutting down of churches. It may happen next week. I want to let you know I'm going to be here. And I'm going to let you know that doors are going to be open if you want to come. Uh, I'm not going to force anybody to come, but I'm still going to be here. I think that there are certain institutions that God sets up. One of them is the family. Another is the church. Another is the government. Each one has its own responsibility. And they are not supposed to cross over into each other. The family is not supposed to come into the church and say, this is how the church ought to be run. The church is not supposed to go into the family and say, you better do this or else. And the government is not supposed to do either to either one. They're They're supposed to remain separate. And so the church, if the Lord says, do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see the day approaching, I see the day approaching, we're going to be meeting together. Now, do I think that the COVID is a real disease? Yes, I do. Do I think we can be smart? About how we handle it? Yes, I do. You think we can be adults? Yes, I think we can be adults in handling this. We are not children that have to be moved along or a group of people that has to be controlled because they're not smart enough to handle what they should handle. The government needs to step in because they're, after all, the ruling class. And by the way, if you go back in history, there's a great uh, video. I'll probably have Daryl or Kim put it up on the website is by William Federer, and it was at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. And he went back through the history of how Marxism came about. And it began all the way with Plato and the city of Atlantis and later to a book written about utopia and how it's supposed to run and how there are those who are the leaders and everybody else are the workers and the workers need to be guided and directed and corralled and trained and controlled and all of that and that's what Marxism and socialism and communism is where there's a few people at the top who are in control and that's what the Democratic Party the Democrat Party I should say that is what they're after the Republican Party is don't control the people let them be free that's a biblical moral which is out there let the people be free let them be who they are so I'm going to end that. How about we go to the scriptures? Take out your Bibles and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, last week, we left off with the judgment seat of God. There is the Bema seat, and there's the great white throne judgment. The Bema seat is for believers, and that deals with the first resurrection, which is in three parts. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. The rapture is the second part of the resurrection. And those underneath the throne of God in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, those are the individuals that are raised part of the first resurrection, the last part of it. It's in three parts, like I just said. Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church, and those underneath the altar. And all of us will be resurrected to rule and reign with Christ. And we will be judged during the time of the rapture before we come back to earth and the Lord will give us a reward according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. We will all appear before the famous seat of Christ. Then the great white throne judgment happens at the second death. That's when everybody from all time is resurrected and they are judged. The books are opened and in anybody's name who is not found written in the book of life, they were condemned to Gehenna where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 Matthew chapter 25 verse 46 both say it will be forever the to- doctrine of total annihilation does not exist in scripture that's where somebody believes that they just die and they go to sleep but they don't dream they no consciousness whatsoever forever and that's not true we are created in the image of God and we will exist forever it just depends on where we're going to exist in a conscious state forever whether it's in Gehenna or whether it's in the presence of God and this This is the reason that Paul is giving out the gospel, because this judgment is coming. Now, can I see who has never had to appear before a judge? Can I see anyone? Some of you are really saints, aren't you? That, that is great. Hadn't had a ticket, or I shouldn't say that, but, you know, if you, maybe you've had the ticket and you just paid it and you didn't appear before the judge, you didn't try to fight it, so all of you are guilty, right? Okay, we, we got that down. But to appear before a judge, I don't know if you've ever been to court, you know, I've, I've gone both to court, I've uh, had to, uh, go to small claims, things like that. And I've been a traffic court as well. You know, I had to go for you know, one time I got a ticket, you know, and, and, Tried to get out of it. didn't work very well. I may have had more tickets, but we won't talk about that. But this this idea that you have to appear before a judge, and when you go in there and you sit down and everybody's waiting and they're kind of nervous, and now you have to go through metal detectors and you have to leave things behind, and sometimes cell phones, you're not allowed to take those in, and they check you for any... Uh, Uh, weapons at all, and then you got to sit down, and then you sit in the court, and your name is called, and if you're in a trial, or if if there's some type of hearing or arraignment, you see the person there behind this plexiglass, which is over there, and it's all very official, and the judge is saying what needs to happen, like a Judge Wapner or Judge Judy type thing, and you're just going, wow, this this is kind of nerve-wracking to be here, and you're so happy when you're able to leave the court, Well imagine meeting the creator of the universe and you have to appear before him all by your lonesome. Right up above, uh, where he's standing up above or sitting up above and you come right before him and he goes give account of yourself. I don't know about you but that causes a little bit of fear to come up in me but I know it's going to be for reward or loss of reward but for those in the world it should be a holy fear you're going to be judged and cast into the lake of fire. And so because of this fear, that motivates Paul to do what he does in giving the gospel and ministering to others. In verse 11, says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. And this word fear is terror. This isn't just like, well, you know, I'm going to honor and respect him in that way and, and kind of bow before him. And that's not what it's talking about here. This is terror that is being talked about and he says we try to persuade men because of the judgment and because of the terror before the throne of god the great white throne judgment and because we are aware and we know that there is a judgment to come which is very fearful we seek to persuade others of the importance of persuading people to believe in jesus that's what we're supposed to do we're And just like Paul, because of the fear of judgment, we want to tell people, say, you know, you need to accept Christ because there is a judgment to come. And of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The person who chooses to turn to the Lord and seek his forgiveness is wise. The person who chooses to turn from the Lord and reject his forgiveness is foolish and also lacks judgment, especially when the evidence is so clear as far as Jesus and what he claimed to be and what he did before the people and the evidence that he was a real individual and actually did these deeds, it's overwhelming if you just look into it. But you have to seek after the Lord and then he lets himself be found by you. And if people are unwilling to do so, well, they're just being foolish if they know that there is a judgment to come. Now, Paul recognized the necessity of persuading those who were lost and. He also felt a need to persuade the church in Corinth of his own integrity as a messenger of the gospel. Because remember, there was a conflict going on in Corinth where the people of Corinth were kind of like, this Paul guy, who is he? And the leaders that had come in, probably even some unbelievers in the leadership there, they were trying to dissuade the people from following Paul or listening to what his teaching was. So there are those who were seeking to disrupt or even destroy the ministry of Paul at Corinth, and he makes an attempt to repair the damage and to work through it in this letter that he gives to them. And he gives several reasons. Of course, we've covered many of those. And he knew there was no need to persuade God, and it frustrated him that it was necessary to persuade the Corinthian Christians over again because he spent a year and a half with them. That's how long. Acts chapter 18 talks about how long he spent with them. And it was a year and a half. And after he left, then these other guys came in. Now, picking it up, it says, What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Verse 12, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart if we are out of our mind it is for the sake of christ do you think somebody said paul was out of his mind that's why he wrote this here somebody was probably saying in the church he's crazy what is he thinking so if we are out of our mind it is for the sake of god if we are in our right mind it is for you for christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him... Who had no sin to be sinned for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul desires to persuade men and women to turn to the Lord. It's plain to everyone what Paul is and what his ministry is about, and it should be with anyone in ministry. It should be plain to anyone who attends church for on a regular basis and over a period of time what the motivation of the pastor is or those in ministry is. If you look at some televangelists, you can tell right away their motivation is to get rich. Just bring in the money to build the ministry, not to minister to the people, not to build up the people. And so it should be plain to anyone what the case is or what the attitude is or what the motivations are of any minister. Uh, He is not boastful about himself, his ministry, and his accomplishments. He is not raving mad, and like I said, apparently some were accusing him of being mad. And he's not driven by competitiveness. Uh, You find that sometimes in ministry where somebody wants to have something that somebody else has, and they use chicanery, they use flattery, they use any type of work, uh divisiveness anything that they can do to get to the place that they want to be he simply wants paul simply wants to convince others that jesus is the one who died for our sins he's pointing to christ and the work he has done and not to himself so he has no personal motivation in this to aggrandize himself or lift himself up as a result he encourages others to no longer live for self but for christ now, if you start examining your life, like I try to examine in my life, do I live for myself or do I live for Christ and live for others? For the most part, I live for myself. I don't know about you guys, but when I get up, brush teeth, eat something, get some coffee, uh, make sure my truck is started, nice and warm, do everything for me. It's me that's on the throne. And if I forget about God, well, that can be an easy habit to fall into. And Paul is trying to convince even the people in Corinth, don't do it. Set your life, set your aim, set your goal towards Christ. And we should no longer look at Jesus from a worldly perspective. If you went to somebody of the world and you asked them, what do you think about God? Specifically, what do you think about Jesus? They're going to tell you all kinds of things, like he's a great teacher, a prophet, a good man, a great healer, a man of wisdom. He was certainly hated by the leaders of the Jews. He was probably considered by some a troublemaker an insurrectionist a rebel but everybody has their opinion of who jesus was and that's looking at jesus from a worldly point of view we need to look at him from a heavenly point of view that he is high and lifted up he should be seen as the savior he is kind and compassionate exodus 34 verse 6 as revealed to moses this is who god is the lord the lord the compassionate and gracious god slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin that he does not leave the guilty unpunished and so he judges every sin but he is gracious and merciful that's who jesus is and that's how we have to look at him he is god in human form not as somebody from the world would look at him now if we do that it actually transforms us it causes us to become a new creation verse 17 reads therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has gone the new has come we are transformed into individuals who are accepted and loved by god where previously we were enemies now we don't really consider ourselves enemies of god before we come to christ maybe some people do but for the most part I don't think most people do. And it doesn't mean we're actively, before we came to Christ, actively campaigning against Jesus, although it may have been the case. How many unbelievers do you know that you engage with turn to you and say, oh, Jesus, he's just the devil incarnate. He's the one that's causing all the problems of the world. If there were no religion, just imagine. Wouldn't it be great? You guys know who said that? Yeah. One of those beetle guys, right? And it it could be the case that we were just simply indifferent to Jesus. And I think that's the way most people are. When you started to become aware, just a side note here. My son and I have been working together now for several months. We never had a chance to do so. And we're working almost every day side by side. And I have seen a transformation in him. And I asked him about it the other day. I said, uh, you know, I sat over the years and watched you. And, of course, he went through his stages where he was a snowboarder that traveled around the United States and would snowboard and moved up to Tahoe and climbed all the mountains up there to snowboard. And he became a roofer. And he's just all about himself and living life to the fullest. It was all great. Then he had kids. And once he had kids, he told me, he goes, you know, it all started to change when I had kids. And I reminded him that everybody before the age of 30 is a liberal. Everyone afterwards is a conservative because they have kids and they pay taxes and they see what's going on in the world. This election, he voted for the first time in probably a decade. And he just... Get, he comes to me, goes... Why are they? He, he's almost getting upset. Why are they doing this? And he doesn't really get upset, but he just, he can't understand it. Why don't they want just a fair and open election? And I'm, I'm just marveling. He's asking these questions. It's good. Not that he didn't ask them before, but we're having a chance to interact now. And, and it's just great. He sees things differently than he did when he was in his early 20s. And that's how we should view Christ. We should see Christ differently than before we got saved or even right at the point of salvation. We really didn't understand who he was then. I didn't know he was God in human form when I got saved. I just know I didn't want to go to hell and I knew the Antichrist was coming. And so I wanted to get saved. And so I got saved. And there's an invitation and I ended up getting saved by a guy on a radio down in Palm Desert all by myself in my bedroom. And so we are to look at Christ differently after we get saved when we become mature than we saw him before from a worldly perspective now again we might have been indifferent and scripture also tells us that if we remain that way indifferent like we may attend church and it may be okay it may be good but scripture does tell us in luke chapter 11 verse 23 he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters so if we are not actively involved in participating in what Christ wants to do, we are actually working against him. It's kind of like going to the gym. If you're not actively going to the gym, what happens? You go to your default setting. <laughs> you know, I read this one joke the other day. It was about uh, I've increased my gardening skills uh, during this COVID outbreak where I have grown a lot. Uh, during this time and we may be growing this way and not so much this way or spiritually because we're just sitting down we're being sedentary we're behind a desk more Uh, we're not getting out as much as we previously did and so the default setting in every human being and i'm referring to believers now the default setting is to be complacent apathetic uncaring and unmotivated i caught myself doing that with the election Fine, I'm not. I'm not going to vote anymore whatsoever. I'm not going to talk to. It doesn't make any difference because Satan, he's the prince of this world, and he's just causing everything to fail. But then I realized, no, the Holy Spirit lives in me, like in all of you, and we're the ones who are supposed to resist evil and stand up against it. But our default setting is simply, like I said, to be complacent, apathetic, uncaring, and unmotivated. While not outright hostile, we can be stubborn in resistance to God's will just like we were before we were saved. If God wants to do something in us, we usually don't want to do it. Like, no, this is the way I've always done it, and this is the way I'm going to do it, so I'm not going to change. You can't make me change, and I'm not going to change. And if we get like that, then we might as well just pack it in, so to speak, because we're working for the next life. We're not working in this life to save others and to be a good servant of Christ. So with that, in chapter 6, it says, As God-fellows workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. It's possible to find out who Jesus is, to be in the faith or in the fellowship of the saints, and really to have that distorted and ruined and even have our faith shipwrecked. This is talked about in Scripture. And as I said before, Paul spent a year and a half with them. And during that time they grew, but then something happened, somebody intervened, somebody was teaching them improper things, and it looks like Paul's having to come in and recover what was lost as far as the people's faith and the ministry is concerned. He was deeply concerned that there would be damage to the faith of the people in that church who were listening to others, who had come in, and who really were preaching a different gospel and there was division it was just mayhem so to speak as far as the church leadership was concerned but how does one receive god's grace in vain well it's been my experience over the almost 30 years that i've been doing this that i've had a chance to see people come into the church and go out of the church every church i was told this when i started every church changes complexion every two years where people will be there and then they'll leave And they'll be there, and they'll leave. About every two years, you get a different group of people, no matter if it's a huge church or a small church. It doesn't matter. It just changes. Now, back in the time of Christ, that wasn't so possible because there's one church in each city. And so that's where you're going to be probably until you died, unless they reached out to other cities. And you could go to other cities, but it wasn't you could go down the next block and go to a church because back then there were pagan temples and there was a synagogue in each city and there was a church in each city. But how do you receive God's grace in vain? Well, there's characteristics and there's a couple types of categories of individuals, I believe, inside a church where this happens. First, it's those who church hop. They go from one church to another. They're here for a while, there for a while. They're looking for something different or newer or something that motivates them. They're in for the experience. They want the experience. They don't want to just sit and be taught and receive the word which is able to build you up and save your soul. They don't want that. They're looking for the experience. Remember I told you about the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Where, Of course you remember that, right? Because you remember everything that I say. It's this idea there's scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. All churches have all four of those. In this church, Scripture is number one. We go to Scripture. We don't go to experience. Although experience is nice and it's helpful, we don't go to experience first. The Assembly of God Church goes to experience first, even in the place of Scripture. You've got to get in touch with the Spirit, brother. The Spirit's doing new things. And forget about the Scripture, even though the Scripture says not everybody should speak in tongues. The Spirit's moving now, and so everybody needs to speak in tongues at one time. You see, and so they refer to the uh, experience. Then there's tradition catholic church tradition Uh, they do not go away from tradition even at the expense of scripture and then there's also reason well let's reason through the scriptures and the reason will enable us to really understand the scriptures even though a lot of times if you use just simply reason you twist the scriptures to your own demise and to your own detriment and so we hold scripture up and then reason with scripture and then tradition well we have our traditions here Uh, we have the music that begins opening prayer uh, everybody stands up and then everybody sits down and we sing some more songs i've gone over this before and when i'm done here i'm going to pray and then the music's going to happen and then there's the coffee and donuts and you know that that's our tradition that's what we do that's how we conduct a service and there's the expository teaching of the word it's not a topical type of teaching and that's okay uh, tradition and experience is good too so sometimes tradition and experience they can kind of flip-flop but it's certainly scripture then it is reason that's how we look at it and the people who church hop they're usually looking for the experience he just doesn't do it for me anymore (laughs) me I didn't know I did it for anybody let alone somebody who wants to go to another church it's the scripture that does it are you getting fed with the scripture that's the point but if somebody doesn't want to hold to the scripture, then they're not going to sink their roots deep. They're looking for something else. I want to be, you know, just excited about some new work or something new. What about the person, which do you appreciate more, a young sapling oak or an oak that's been there a hundred years? You look at the oak that's been there a hundred years and go, oh, look at the size of that thing. It'll make a great table. You can't make a table out of a little sapling, can You can't do anything with it except break it in half. And so that's one of the people that is in the church that experiences God's grace in vain. It really doesn't solidify them. They don't sink their roots deep. They're never able to graduate to living for Christ and for others. They're always seeking what pleases them rather than what is pleasing to God and sacrificing to others. Now, if there's a problem in the walk, that's different. And that has to be corrected. Now, there are also those who simply drop off by the wayside. They'll come into church and it's just like ho-hum. They, they really do not seek to be fed or feed themselves. Uh, aren't you glad that you don't have a older teenager or young adult that you still have to feed? Uh, do you call them up say, okay, I'm getting ready to serve dinner here in the next hour. I want you seated at the table, sit down, and you go up to them and you put a bib on them and you you know your mom used to cut your steak for you or your meat in little tiny bites, and here, you give it to you like that. And, you know, if you've been a Christian for 20 years and you're still relying on that, you're in the wrong place. You're not going on to full maturity. If you don't know what the Scripture has to say, you think somebody spoon-feeding it to you is going to help, we have to eventually learn how to feed ourselves. My grandson, he's learning to feed himself, you know, Oh, you want some waffle? Yeah, has little chompers in there—you know—that's that's going, and he bites everything that is out there. Everything goes into the mouth, and he wants to do that. And pretty soon, I'm sure he's going to want to hold that spoon. And today we're celebrating his birthday. Guess what? We're giving him a cake. My daughter's giving him a cake. What's he going to do with the cake? Feed himself. He's going to learn how to feed himself. It's going to be a wonderful time. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be just great. But sometimes people in the church, they stop feeding themselves or they never picked it up. They simply stop coming to fellowship. They no longer attend. And maybe they possibly don't attend anywhere else. They could be in between the church hopper or the one who just falls out by the wayside. During this COVID time, we've seen a lot of that. Not just in this church, but other churches as well. People just stop coming. They get lazy. We have had some it, like... It's just so much easier not to do anything, not to be forward-looking, not to go to the gym, so to speak. It's a lot easier just to be complacent. And so they just slide out of church. It's not like they bang on the drum saying, say, I'm leaving! They just slide out. They slowly just disappear. And what happens? They receive the grace of God in vain. What effect has it had in their lives? Nothing. There's no transformation whatsoever. Uh, Sometimes they leave because they're offended. Sometimes they leave because they're just lazy. You know, they get asked, "Uh, you would like to do something? Uh, No, not now. Thank you very much. But thanks for asking. Uh, There's always a justification for inaction. I'm going to say that again. There's always a justification for inaction. They say, well, you know, I got this and I got that. And there's always an excuse. And so we want to make sure that we are not falling into those who church hop Those who simply drop off by the wayside. And there are those, then there are those who become hostile to the Christian faith. We've had those in this church too. Even to the point where one person left and he created a website to speak against Christ and against Christianity. It just so happened that God had me meet up with this guy over and over by happenstance. He would be driving by and go, and he'd pull over and we'd talk. And he would Just talk about his disgust with the Christian church and it's not the Christian God. I said, Really? And we talked over time, and finally, over about six months, he agreed that there is a God and it's Jesus Christ. But the person has never gotten back into church. It just kind of ruined them, It, it shipwrecked their faith, and all because they were listening to individuals who had a contrary view of Jesus Christ and who he was. And there are reasonable answers if you really want them for somebody who falls into this category. But it's very, very difficult to convince somebody to come back to Christ that has already decided, I'm not going to follow him. Some of them have what is known as a deconversion experience. And it, it's sad. It's very sad to see that. So this is a case that Paul is dealing with. There are those in the church of Corinth that are falling by the wayside. They're going away from the gospel that had actually been given to them. They may be wanting to just stop going to church. They didn't have really the ability to church hop. But maybe they're just sliding out of church. They're no longer coming in because the leaders there were not giving them the pure milk of the word. They were not leading them in the right direction. And so because of that, you had the, the light of God mixed with the darkness of the world. And as you did this, then it just corrupted what the pure gospel was. So Paul was having a hard time dealing with this. Paul also had his own detractors in the ministry. Two of those guys were Hymenaeus and Alexander, 1 Timothy chapter 118. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that you will follow them, or so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, are these guys believers, not believers? Well, I would think you cannot say Jesus be cursed if you didn't have the Spirit of God. But if you don't have the Spirit of God, it'd be easy to say that. So these guys were actually blaspheming God. They had been apparently in the church. They had left. They may have even been leaders. And now they were cursing Christ and cursing the church Now, all of these could be said to have received the gospel but received it in vain. So on the contrast, how would you know if you have not received the gospel in vain that the gospel is actually having its work in you and in me? What does a true follower, disciple of Christ look like? Well, you know, we have the basics. You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you give, you're involved in ministry, all of those things. Well, this is kind of the trek they accept forgiveness of Christ. They grow in their knowledge of the Son of God. They actually work at it, just like you feed yourself in the morning or in the evening. You feed yourself with the Word of God. You ingest it. They begin to reach out to others. Now, this is a key. If the gospel of Jesus is not in vain in your life, eventually you're going to tell somebody. You're going to reach out to them you're going to let them know what has happened to you. Not that you just walk up to somebody. Hey, you want to hear what happened to me? It doesn't work like that. It just comes up normally in a conversation unless you're an evangelist. And then they begin to reach out to others and then they minister. They share the gospel. They provide encouragement. They exercise their gifts. This is the normal course of somebody who has followed in the grace of Christ, where they actually have had an effect in their lives because of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And they persevere in the faith. They just don't check out after a few years. Remember Matthew chapter 13 that deals with the parable of the sower, of the seed, the seed that goes on the path. You have the seed that goes in the rocky ground, seed that goes amongst the thorns and thistles and is choked out. And then you have the seed that is planted in the furrowed ground. And it produces a crop, 30, 60, 100 times that which has been sown. Well, they actually continue. They persevere. They don't give up no matter how tough it gets. And it gets tough. And it gets harder as you get older, it seems like. I've had some experience in that. And, but they plant themselves. Now, being of the uh, field, so to speak, in my job, I know what it is to plant. I'm getting ready to plant 75 roses on a particular job was going to be 115 and they got a new design on it and so we have to prepare the soil just right and we're going to put those in these holes and it's going to just look wonderful it's going to be beautiful white roses on this bank it's just going to be perfect but what if i went in there planted it and then five days later yanked it out and stuck it in another hole okay let's see how you do and then five days later i yank it out and no, it goes better over here. And I put it in that hole. Is that plant going to grow very good? No, it's constantly going. Let me give you some uh, botany here. When a plant has its roots going down, the very tips of those roots, you really can't see them, although you think you can. And on the tips of those roots are what are known as root hairs. And they're only a cell big. One cell. And they reach out into the soil to soak up the nutrients in the water. And if you grab it and you yank it out, you break all of those off. And then you stick it in another hole, then it has to recover. It has to get those little root hairs growing again to soak up water and nutrients. But if you take it out of that hole and you stick it in this hole over here, then it's not going to grow. It's just going to be truncated. It's going to be dwarfed in its growth. People do the same thing with the church hop. I don't like this church over here. I'm going to go over here. Then okay. you get to know everybody all again and you, they get to uh, understand who you are and maybe they'll plant you somewhere and you just go, I'm done here too. Let me, let me pull up over here and go over to this church. And nobody really ever sinks their roots deep. Well, I can't say nobody. It's just those who hop. They don't do it. And as a result, they never fully mature. They're never able to gain the understanding or the perseverance that they need. Now, I'm not saying that if somebody goes, they weren't supposed to go. No, God calls people all the time. I was called out from the church that I was in. And I went to two churches before that. So I get that. That's fine. But God had a plan. He knew where I needed to be. First, it was Faith Chapel in Spring Valley. That's one of the first churches I went to. Then it was Horizon San Diego. Before that, it was Calvary Chapel San Diego, and they changed the name. From there, it was La Mesa, and La Mesa, he called me out here. And each place was a training ground. So that happens too. That's okay. There's no complaining against that but you know the difference that I'm talking about here. It's a person who just is not satisfied in any way, just won't sit down and relax and and be fed and and just engage themselves in a long-term commitment, so to speak. And so that's the individual who is maturing. They have not received the gospel in vain, the one who perseveres. They endure hardship. They're able to articulate what they believe and why Paul Little has a couple of books. What You Believe and why you believe and the basics of the christian faith and you can go through their those and people sometimes have not gone through those books and it happens all the time but they do know what they believe and they can explain why to people they know the ten commandments, and they probably know them in order it's always good to know those in order they know the books of the bible just basics of the christian faith they know this guy called paul who was an apostle they understand who he was they understand James and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Matthew's name was Levi. They they understand the scope of the Bible. They know that there were two kingdoms in the Old Testament. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there was King David, probably the greatest king that was ever there. But Jesus is going to be there, so he's going to be supplanted by Jesus when he gets there. And they understand Moses, and they understand the wandering in the wilderness, and they understand the sacrificial system. They've gone through all of this. They've been discipled. They have a grasp on it. It's not something new that they go, wow, I never knew that. How long have you been a Christian? 60 years? Yeah, it's like, maybe you should know that by now, but there's just no application. There's no rooting, setting the the, uh, roots deep inside the soil and growing and maturing. You can only do that. Let me ask you this. Which marriage is better? One that changes every five years with a new partner or one that goes 30 years? It's the one that goes 30 years. Because you grow and you mature and you acclimate and you bend and you mold and iron sharpens iron. It's all good, but people don't like to do that. We're into this satisfy me now society. I need a change instead of just resting where they're supposed to. And this individual who does this, who has received the gospel, not in vain, they're the ones that persevere. They're the ones that have knowledge of the truth. They're able to point to the truth and also point to error. They don't need a lot of time. If they hear something that sounds a little off, they go, that's a little off. And they're confident in that. Now, people in this day and age, they don't like you to be so confident. They don't like you to say, how do you know Jesus is the only way? Well, let me tell you, you got about 20 minutes. Let's sit down. Let's go through it. You can't just say, well, I just know. I know in my heart. That's what the Mormons say. I I have this burning in the bosom. I just know what's going in there. I'm not mocking the people. I'm mocking the technique. That's what they say. I just know that it's true because I feel it on the inside. What about the scripture says the heart is desperately wicked? Who can know it? Lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. What about that? Well, I just know. No, you're falling into error if that's the case. But the person who has not received the gospel in vain doesn't do that. They can point out the error. The love and dedication drives them to Christ. They keep on going no matter how difficult it is. They don't make rash decisions. They're level-headed. You ever see somebody make a rash decision like, that's not a good one. I wouldn't do that if I were you, especially in driving. You ever see rash decisions in driving people make? have we made them before yes we have does it get us in trouble yes it does but we don't we shouldn't make rash decisions we're so quick to just want to move and experience something different when the bible says there's nothing new under the sun yeah but that doesn't change how I view things well it may not but I think God's view is better than our views and they are grounded they understand the focus should not be on what they are receiving or what they are not receiving that's usually the case and how it should be on how they might follow Christ and minister to others. This is what the Corinthian church was lacking. They were just going, they were like uh, double-minded, unstable in all their ways, the book of James. They are being tossed back and forth by every winded doctrine because they were not solidified in their faith. They were not persevering. They were not on a particular course to enable that. Now, these people who have not received the gospel in vain, are they perfect? No. Far from it. But there is a sense of humility that is displayed in the life of this type of individual. They get it. They understand the fallenness of the world. They're not easily dissuaded from being full of joy because of circumstances around them, like an election. They just say, you know, this is going to work out for our benefit, Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And we are all called according to his purposes. So, as God fellow workers, we urge you, verse 1 of chapter 6, uh, or we beg you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. You know, between chapters 5 and 6, I counted 21 times the first person plural pronoun that was used was we. Paul was constantly saying we, 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 we—all of us. They were the ones. Him and his crew. Him and his fellow laborers with Christ were all working to get the gospel. He was not even focusing on himself. I—I I just started highlighting them. I have them all highlighted and un, un, underlined and highlighted in yellow on this uh, page that I have, and it, it's just everywhere. Like, wow, he wasn't focusing on himself. He was focusing on others, which is the whole goal of ministry and they were working together they actually put their hands to the plow together and remember when we do that and scripture talks about putting your hand to the plow anybody who looks back to the world is not fit for the kingdom fit for service in the kingdom and so once you put your nose to the grindstone so to speak another metaphor i'm mixing my metaphors here but plowing the ground we're all supposed to do it grab the plow and start plowing now i tell you or excuse me, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And he places here a sense of urgency of God's favor and God's salvation. My only lament after getting saved, and I'll have to close it up here uh, right at verse 3. My only lament is that I didn't get saved earlier. You know, I look back and, of course, God knew the timing, what the timing had to be. And, and I, I look back on and I thought it was 19, but maybe it was 20 or 21 that I got saved. But it was 19 to 21, somewhere in there. I know where I was and, and the time that I was uh, experiencing Christ, so to speak. And then when I got saved, I became a zealot on fire, burning everything in my path. And, and I just couldn't wait to tell people about the gospel. But And then I mellowed by last year I mellowed and then you know I I wish that maybe I got saved at 15 or 16 or even earlier and that I would have been following Christ all that time because you know like everybody you have a testimony before that and hopefully we don't revert to that testimony but it's the time is short and we don't realize how short it is and now I'm in the autumn of life and being in the autumn of life I'm even more the time's shorter Now, and I need to make sure I am even more at the business of Christ to which he has called me heavenward. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what we're all supposed to do. So don't think for a second or walk out with a cloud of condemnation. Well, I haven't done any of that stuff. So what? Forgetting what is behind, I reach forth into the things which are before me. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm supposed to do. Forget about the past. You know, and if you're focused on Christ and what He has for you in the days ahead, in the days ahead, great! Grab hold of it. How do they say, it? grab the bull by the horns, so to speak? Muscle that thing. Say, I'm going to be that disciple. I'm going to understand what the Scripture has to say. I'm going to be able to discern truth from error. I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going to serve others. That's what we're supposed to do. We're never supposed to say, okay, I'm done, I'm going to take it easy. And that's what Paul is telling the church in Corinth. Don't give up, keep striving forward, remember what you were first taught, and do not let bad company corrupt your good morals, which we'll get into next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and The the church at Corinth, even though they had so many failings, we know that they were yours. We know that Paul loved him, loved them, and expressed his love repeatedly for the people in Corinth. May we have that same view, even of those who would oppose us, just like Paul. He loved them, just like those who would seek to destroy whatever you have built through us. Help us to love them, Lord. And when conflict arises, help us keep in mind you know the beginning from the end. And the war has already been won. And so we'll rest in you for this, Lord, whether it's the election or our personal walks with you or mimicking the people in Corinth. I pray that you would set us aright, set us anew. Restore us, Lord, if we are fallen. Lift us up for your sake and not for our own. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. (laughs)